pray once more. Father, we are grateful to you to have the word of God before us. We are grateful for the opportunity to have you speak to us now. As we have spoken to you throughout this service in song and in prayer, we now invite you to speak to us. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I believe this is uh, the 23rd sermon that we have been, or we have now in Exodus, and so we're making our way section by section through this great Old Testament book, and in the last several weeks, we have been in the wilderness with the Israelites as they have been undergoing a period of testing. They were rescued from oppression in Egypt, and then they were set in the wilderness to be tested by the Lord. We've been tracing their journey from the Red Sea all the way to Mount Sinai, which is where they find themselves in chapter 18, and where we'll be spending quite a bit of time as in coming weeks they receive the law of God for their community from God himself. Each step along the way has taught them a a different lesson. The Red Sea was the place where they experienced salvation, where they experienced God's miraculous and powerful deliverance. They moved on from the Red Sea to a place called Mara, which was a place of testing, where they encountered bitter water that God made sweet. They moved on from there to the oasis of Elim, which was a place of refreshment and rest. They journeyed from Elim into the wilderness of Sin, which was the place where they saw God miraculously begin to provide for them in the form of food, manna from heaven. And then they moved on in Exodus 17 to the place called Massa and Meribah, which became a place of warning. Last week, we saw that they were in the wilderness of Rephidim, which became for them a place of battle. It was the first time they encountered external attack since leaving Egypt and crossing the Red Sea. Up until that point, they had been mainly met by their own corruption within. They had been met by temptations to grumble, temptations to complain, temptations to unbelief and doubt God. But then they encountered an external threat in the form of the Amalekites. Moses lifted his hands, raised the staff of God in it, was helped by Aaron and Hur on both sides. And as a result, they were able, because of the staff of God, because of the power of God represented in that staff, they were able to overcome the Amalekites. This has got to be an exhausted people. Can you imagine? This is an exhausting journey. Now, for sure, their sin is not justification, but nevertheless, it's an exhausting journey. We saw last week that when the attack happened by the Amalekites, that they were weary. Deuteronomy 25 talks about the way the Amalekites came and attacked them. They attacked them from behind. They attacked the weakest part of the train. They attacked the women and the children. But the whole whole group was weary. And we know that Moses was weary. His hands, as an 80-year-old man, could barely stay up during the battle. And so Aaron and Hur had to come along and assist him. They're weary. They're tired. What do we do? when we're weary and when we're tired. Well, we spend some time in Exodus 18 because here we, we understand that God, as the God of Exodus 18, is a God of help. He's a God of help. We've seen him lead them through salvation and testing and rest and provision and warning and battle. But after all that, they're weary. And in Exodus 18, we meet God as a God of help. Did you notice the sons that Moses has. 
He has got two boys, Gershom and Eliezer. And those two names that he named his boys tell really the story of Moses' life so far. Gershom means I was a stranger in a strange land, which he was. And Eliezer means the Lord is my help. The Lord has been my help. He, Moses has found God to be a God of help, and he's going to find God in this chapter to continue to be a God of help by sending him his family and by sending him a very good father-in-law, a good, wise father-in-law who's going to help him navigate some of the complexity that he's dealing with. What has God taught Moses and the people? He's taught them so far, I can take care of your food. I can take care of your water. I can take care of your enemies. And now he teaches them what's often the most difficult lesson for all of us. I can take care of my people. I can take care of my people. So this morning we're going to look at four ways God helps us. Four ways God helps us as we witness his help in the life of Moses. Number one, God helps us by sending surprises. You say, that's... Well, some surprises aren't very helpful. Agreed. Israel along the way has met many surprises that were not helpful, at least at first. They met an Egyptian army at the Red Sea. That's not helpful. They met the Red Sea itself. That's not helpful. They met uh, thirst and food needs at first, and that wasn't helpful. They met a battle. That wasn't helpful. But all the while, God showed himself to be helpful, didn't he? In the midst of the difficulty, God became their help. We won't experience God's help any, any other way. So, but sometimes the surprises that he sends are good right off the bat. Sometimes the, the surprise has a delayed blessing built into it. Sometimes when we get the surprise, we're like, this is terrible. I don't like this. What's God going to do? I don't like to be surprised like this. I mean, they have been encountering surprises all along the way. They did not like, but that were hidden within them, blessing as they saw God provide for them. But here, Moses meets a surprise in the form of his coming family to reunite with him, which is a wonderful surprise. And so God helps us by sending surprises. And in what ways did God help Moses here? Well, he reunites him with his earthly family. His family includes his wife Zipporah, which who we've already met in the Exodus story, and two sons, Gershom and Eliezer, and his father-in-law Jethro. Now, how did the reunion take place? Well, according to verse 1, Jethro somehow heard what was going on, and it wasn't through email, and he didn't get a text. He didn't get a tweet. Hey, look, just scrolled through my Twitter feed, and it sounds like the Israel just got out of Rephidim, and they're at Sinai. Wow, good news. They didn't see it on Fox News or CNN. or No, he, evidently he's heard about this because God's fame is beginning to spread already as he's delivered the people of Israel. Remember, the purpose of his deliverance of Israel and the ways he's delivered them is because he wants to be known. He wants to reveal himself as the God who provides as the God who cares for his people, as the God who is God over all, all elements, armies and plagues and wars and needs and all that. God's God over it all. God controls everything. And so he's been revealing that, and Jethro's gotten word about what God has done. And so he comes out to meet Moses. And so as he's on his way, evidently in verse 6, 
Moses gets word that Jethro's coming. And then Moses goes out to meet him in verse 7. And notice what they say to each other. Verse 7, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. What a glorious surprise. What a help. What a blessing. Brothers and sisters, God often sends us help by sending us people who love us and that we love. It's as simple as that. There's nothing, God's not dropping any kind of magical dust out of the sky and making him feel happy. He's sending somebody he loves to him. Let's remember that our earthly families are a precious gift from God and a means of help in this life. Now, for sure, our earthly families are not God. And we need to hear that in our, in our area that oftentimes puts family above God. Well, I can't come to church and be with my heavenly family. I've got too much to do with my earthly family. That's an inverted sense of priority. That's wrong and it's unbiblical. Your church family is your most important family, but it's not your only family. Jesus acknowledges sometimes the discipleship to him are going to cost us earthly ties, right? But not always. Not always. And our earthly families are a source of immense help and blessing to us in this life. God comforts us often through our families. And where our earthly family isn't, God's eternal family is. Which is why the church is to be our family of families. God often comforts us through the sending of people who love us and that we love. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, Paul received this very thing. He, he writes to the Corinthians and says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Don't you love Paul's vulnerability and transparency? He said, When I got into Macedonia... I had no rest, and I was scared to death, and I was, there was fighting without, and there was fear within. Then verse 6 says, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the sending of Titus. The coming of Titus, a brother in Christ whom Paul loved. That's often the way God comforts us. He comforts us by sending us somebody. Sometimes from our earthly families, sometimes from our church family. And it's always a source of help and comfort to us. Let's not be so spiritual as to not think that God often helps us by just putting people in our lives to comfort us. That's the way he works. That's why the church is here. That's why the church is the church. We are meant to come alongside one another and comfort one another. That's your job description, brothers and sisters. That's all of our job descriptions. It's not the pastor's job description alone. It's the church's job description. We come alongside each other, all of us, by, the, by, by casting comfort and care, bringing comfort and care with us. That's the first way God helps us, by sending surprises. Number two, God helps us by saving people. God helps us by saving people. Brother Jordan, what an encouragement. Praise God for what he's done in saving you, my brother, and 
bringing you to himself and getting a chance to be with one of our brothers this morning and hear his testimony. And we're going to hear an equally radical transformation here in Exodus 18, namely how Jethro embraced the true God. Because this is strange. What is Jethro doing here? He's, he doesn't have a background in Israel. He, as we're going to find out, he, he's a Midianite. He's outside the covenant people, and yet he believes. Moses told his testimony in two parts. That's why I love Jordan that he came this morning and shared part of his testimony because that's what Moses does with his brother Jethro or his father-in-law Jethro here. He shares his testimony. He shares what God has done. Look at verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the hardship. Don't spare the, don't spare the hard stuff. Tell that too. God can handle it and God's people need it all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. There's a testimony. That's all it is. Here's who God is. Here's how bad it got. Here's what God did. That's a testimony, and that's what he shares with Jethro. And notice how Jethro responds in verse 9. Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. We might be saying, well, Jethro's just rejoicing. You know, we hear that sometimes, like sometimes people will share a very Christ-centered testimony, something about what God has done, and they'll say, well, good for you. I'm glad your God helped you with that. Is that what Jethro's doing here? Like he's just giving him a, a good for you, that's your God, that's your spiritual thing, I'm glad that helped you? No, because notice what he says in the next verse. Verse 10, Jethro, blessed be the Lord. He, he starts to worship the God of Moses who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people, talking about the people of Egypt. And Jethro, verse 12, Moses' father-in-law brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. So he's worshiping. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. They are receiving him as one of God's people. Jethro rejoices. He blesses God. He confesses that God is the true God, and he eats with God's people. Now, I don't know if you notice something, but I think Jethro's converted. When we meet him before, he's not. But somehow, he's gotten to be converted. I mean, that's the New Testament language, right? Because in case you missed it, it's so deliberate you may have missed it. It said, they call Jeth- in this chapter, Moses calls Jethro the priest of Midian. You see that in verse 1? Jethro, the priest of Midian. That's not an Israelite. He's the priest of Midian, some other god, some other religion, some other place. But by the end of verse 12... I think we're right to say that this man has been transformed. He's been saved. He's been converted. He's been brought into the people of God. Now, I want you to contrast this. It's good when we're reading the Scriptures to ask ourselves, as we're reading them, why, why is this story here? Why now? Why this part of the story here? Sometimes we can know definitively because the author tells us, and sometimes we just don't know. And we have to make inferences based on the context. But I think it's very, very interesting here on why Exodus 18 and the story of Jethro getting saved 
is on the heels of the end of Exodus 17 where the nations are attacking the people of God. The Amalekites were attacking. In Exodus 17, we see non-Israelites, that is the Amalekites, approach Israel. And what's their approach? They intend to slaughter them. But now in Exodus 18, we see a non-Israelite approach not to slaughter the people of God, but to show great sympathy toward the people of God. And this is the point that God is making to Moses, to Israel, and to all of us. Look, you have these enemies, these nations around you. But listen, I can conquer them and I can convert them. I do both. And my purpose is not just to stiff arm the nations, but to save the nations to bring the nations into my family. And so what we see here is while the Amalekites are being stiff-armed, a Midianite is being embraced and brought into the family of God. God saves people. We see in this passage a wonderfully refreshing reminder that the gospel is intended for all people and all nations. Moses had very, very little to do with this. And this should give you great encouragement for the people in your family that you long to see converted, that you want to see saved. Don't you want, don't, doesn't your heart beat for, like Moses for Jethro? Don't you want people to come to know the true and living God in your family? Moses had very little to do with this. God saved his father-in-law quite apart from anything he did directly. Now, he did share his testimony. We're going to get to that in a second. But it seems like God was working in Jethro before Jethro ever even got to Moses. And Moses just kind of fumbled through a testimony. And the next thing we know, Jethro's worshiping God, blessing God, rejoicing in God, renouncing other gods, and sitting down at a table to have a feast. Praise God! What a salvation that we've seen. We, however, we do learn some principles here for interacting with our unbelieving family in some God-honoring ways. Notice what Moses doesn't do. Here comes that pagan. Good grief, what an awkward meal this is going to be. He lives so ungodly. Probably doesn't even worship the same God. Probably just going to make it real awkward in here. No, what does he do? He welcomes him. He gives him a hug. He gives him a kiss. He demonstrates love. He asks how he's doing. How's your welfare? What's been going on? He's a friend. Brothers and sisters, your unbelieving family needs to feel like that. They need to feel like that. They need to feel welcomed. They need to feel loved. You don't have to agree with everything. It's not the issue here. The issue is love and demonstrating that love in practical ways. And then notice what he, what he does. He doesn't say all the ways the Midianites are wrong in their worship. Well, he, he, he embraces a false, a different worldview, and so let's go ahead and just pick that worldview apart and talk about all the ways in which they're wrong. No, what does he do? He just testifies to what God is doing in his life. He just says, I've been through a lot of hardship, and God's delivered me, and I praise God for that. He's been with us. And he leaves it at that. Brothers and sisters, there's a lot of wisdom here on the way we interact with family that doesn't yet embrace Christ. Demonstrate love, give your testimony, and leave it in God's hands. Leave it in God's hands. Demonstrate love, 
give your testimony repeatedly. Do those two things all the time. Talk about God. Show a lot of love. Be patient and leave it in God's hands. And be encouraged that though discipleship sometimes draws the line right down the middle of the family, God is often pleased to save right down the middle of the family too and save our, save our family members. God does the heavy lifting in our families, brothers and sisters. That doesn't excuse our responsibility. Moses doesn't say, well, I don't, I'm just going to show the gospel. I'm not going to tell it. You've got to open your mouth. But you need to open your mouth in God-honoring, Christ-centered ways, not condemning judgmental ways. Open your mouth and declare God's goodness and grace and power in your own life and leave it in God's hands. And over time, perhaps he will save. So that's the, another way we see God helping Moses. I mean, imagine you're Moses here and you're sitting here and you're just amazed, first of all, that God brought your family, but then second of all, that he's saving your family and he's saving the most unlikely members of your family. I mean, Jethro, let me, let me just point this out. Some of you feel like that God can't save your family because you've blown it with your family. Anybody believe that? Like, God can't save my family because they've seen me at my absolute worst. When did Jethro last see Moses? On exile because he disobeyed God. He got assigned a shepherding position because he disobeyed God's call. If anybody blew it in front of their father-in-law, it was Moses. And yet here we see God saving. Take comfort in that. Take comfort. Don't hide your sin. Don't excuse your sin. But your sin is not an obstacle to God's salvation. He blew it. He messed up. He owned it. You need to do the same, and you need to move on, and you need to leave it in God's hands. And so I'm greatly encouraged by this example. His background, Moses' background, Jethro's background did not lend itself a lot to a salvation experience here. But that's exactly what happens because God is a God who saves. And he's a God who helps us by saving people. Those are the first two. God helps us by sending surprises and God helps us by saving people. Number three, God helps us by supplying counsel. God helps us by supplying counsel. In what ways does God help his people in verses 13 through 18? Well, look at verse 13. We see Moses is solving disputes all day, every day, as the people wait in long lines to speak with them. How many of you want this job? I am professional conflict resolver. Good grief. If anything makes me go hide in the bushes, do that all day, every day. People come to me with their little petty problems, and I've got to give them judgments about that? Whew. His schedule's book solid, too. And it doesn't look like there's any end in sight. He's got, if you want to call and book a counseling appointment with Moses, it's going to be at least a few years out. He's the one man to who every person in Israel is looking to right their wrongs. And that, no pastor wants that job. You're the one man that everybody looks to to right their wrongs. God help us all. Hebrews 13, 7, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. This is the verse that all, every pastor is scared to preach on because it sounds so self-serving, but it's in the Bible. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this, that is, let them shepherd you, let them keep watch over you with joy and not with groaning. 
So there are two responses that pastors have to keeping watch over sheep, joy and groaning. And Hebrews 13 says, church, let them do that with joy, not with groaning. Why? For that would be of no advantage to you. You want an advantage spiritually? You want joyful pastors. Moses is not going to experience joy here. Moses is not going to experience blessing here. He's encountering one problem after another. He's going to burn out. He's tired. He's worn out. And he's responsible for this. He set this up. This was his decision, or it was his non-decision that resulted in a decision because he's receiving all this. Israel was called by God, and the church is called by God, to live life in such a way that it is as much a joy and as little a challenge to be their pastor as possible. They have not made it easy for Moses. Part of it's because he has an unconverted congregation. And that's really difficult to pastor. But nevertheless, they are to do this with, to make it a joy for him to serve and not a challenge and a groan for him to serve. They're called to be low-maintenance, and yet they're not. They're high-maintenance. And he's high-maintenance because he's permitting it. And so what's Jethro's assessment of all this leadership structure? He said, that's terrible. That's terrible. What are you doing? That's the way. Oh, that's the, that's the New Owensboro translation. That's terrible. What do you, but he says in verse 14, what are you doing? In other words, you're stupid. What are you doing? This is foolish. He sees this inverted. This is backwards. Why are you one person serving all the people? You sit alone and they stand around you. That's backwards. They should be serving each other while you give leadership. You, you got it all messed up here. What's Moses' response? Look in verse 15 and 16. For they, let me make sure I'm in the right chapter. Verse 8, uh, chapter 18, and Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God, and when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. So in one way, that's just a statement of fact. He's just saying that's what happens. So they, they come to me, they've got issues, and I'm supposed to help them resolve them. But at another level, something else is operating underneath Moses here. He feels like he's way too important. The people need me. Listen, brothers and sisters, failure to delegate comes from a false sense of self-importance the idea that if I don't do it, then it will never get done or will not be done properly. No person is indispensable, and neither the person himself nor the organization should think of anyone in that matter. Nobody is indispensable. Jethro's response, again, to Moses' admission, look at verse 17. He says, what you're doing is not good. <laughs> it's not good. So he said, first of all, he asked him, what are you doing? And then he explains it, and he says, still, not a good, not a good. Not a good plan. Not a good plan. Why is it not good? We see in verse 18 why it's not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. And that's true for every leader. 
every leader, no matter how high the capacity of that leader. No one leader is meant to carry everything on their own shoulders. That's a recipe for flame out, scandal, infidelity, all kinds of problems. We want to put all that on, the, we'll look to replace him later because he's going to either be fried, burned out, quit, or flame out because he commits some moral scandal. People never run out of needs. So when we take the responsibility to help meet everybody's need, we will have as much work as we can possibly handle. The problem comes when we try to carry burdens that are bigger than the ones that God has actually called us to bear. God never intends for us to do all the work ourselves. This is why we have the body of Christ in which we are dependent on to help others. It's utter folly for leaders, ministers, pastors to think that they can do it all themselves. Christian ministry is not a one-man show. It's not good for anyone to try to do God's work all on their own. We all have limitations, all of us, including the man preaching to you this morning. It is unwise to think that we can always handle more and more and more and more. It's harmful to us, and in the end, it's harmful to other people. The goal of all this was to make it possible for Moses to continue to lead. If he didn't do this, he would have burned out and no longer led. And so Jethro sees that, and as a wise older man, he looks and says, okay, this is not going to end well. It might feel good and the people want this, but this is not going to end well. This is going to be terrible. He's 80, and he's spending all day long counseling, counseling, counseling. Now, Moses is an excellent counselor, but he's not made to do this, and he's not called to do this, and Jethro knows it. So that's the wise counsel that is sent to Moses. Aren't we helped so often by wise counsel, by someone coming along and saying, hey, the way you're doing it, you could, there's a different way to do this. And then you go, ooh, thank you, so good. And that's exactly what Jethro does here. He supplies him with organizational administrative help and counsel. And Moses, as we see later in the chapter, embraces it, puts it into action, and is blessed as a result of it. So that's the third way God helps us, by supplying counsel. Here's the fourth and final way God helps us. We've seen God helps us by sending surprises, saving people, supplying counsel. Here's the last way. God helps us by sharing leadership. God helps us by sharing leadership. Now, we just saw the state that Moses was in and the state the people of Israel were in. Now, hang with me, we're going to see the the place that God's going to take them, the path forward, the blessing that's going to come. Notice what he says to Moses in verses 19 and 20. He says in verse 19, Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. He says, you got two jobs, pray and preach. You got two jobs, prayer and the ministry of the word. Does that sound like anything New Testament to you? Remember Acts chapter 6? when there's a dispute at the church and they come along and they say, the the elders come, the apostles come, and they say, look, the elders aren't supposed to be doing this kind of stuff. They are supposed to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And you've got them serving tables and caring for widows. Does that mean that caring widows and serving tables is a bad thing? No, no, it's not his point. He said division of labor is the key here. Deacons, come on. Deacons, take care of it. 
So then the diaconate is established, at least the proto-diaconate, and say, your priority is to give yourself to the ministry of the word and prayer. And that's exactly what Jethro tells Moses to do. He says, you present the people's cases before God, that is, you pray, and then you teach them God's statutes and rules and laws. You preach, you teach, you do that. Now, of course, there are other pastoral responsibilities we see in the New Testament, and just in, in reality, there's services to plan and sermons to prepare and classes to teach and conflicts to resolve and counsel to give and letters to write and questions to answer and events to plan and websites to update and information to communicate and budgets to monitor and meetings to attend and leaders to disciple and ministries to oversee and missionaries to encourage and people to pray for and hospitals to visit and funerals to attend and lead. But the priority among all those things is to pray and preach. That's the priority. To pray and minister the word. Not just stand behind a pulpit and preach it, but to minister the word in the life of the congregation. Well, but if he just preaches and if he gives himself to pr- the priority of preaching and prayer, what, 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 what's the, what are the rest of, what's there, how's the council, how's the other stuff going to happen? He says in verse 20 how it's going to happen. Or verse 21, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens. How big is Moses' church here? 200,000 men at least. I mean, he's, he's at, he's, there's, there's a range. It's between five to 600,000 and two million. That's a big church. <laughs> That's a big church. 200, 300, 400 is a big church for people, one person, by all by themselves. Much less a church of 2 million, like Moses is dealing with. So what's the solution? Well, he says in verse 19 and 20, your priority is to preach and pray. And then verse 21, raise up other leaders with character. Raise up other leaders with character. And notice what he says. Character is primary, not skill set. It's not what they do, it's who they are. That is so important. That's why 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 is in the Bible. We don't look for pastors and leaders first and foremost based upon what they can do, although that's important, they've got to be able to teach. But we looked at for who they, who they are. Are they humble men? Are they, do they pursue God? Are they, are they open and reasonable and wise and careful and patient? All those sorts of, and all the character traits that are mentioned. By the way, um, in carrying on Pastor Ted's legacy and tradition, one of my great burdens was to see our pastor's fellowship continue that he started so many years ago. And we're meeting back on Monday, starting tomorrow. And uh, I feel totally unqualified and feel like he should still be leading it, and he should, but he's in heaven, and God said he shouldn't be, so that's all right, too. I'm going to submit to God. But what you can pray for this year is we're going to go back to, we've taken uh, Psalm 78, 27 as our theme verse for the year, talking about David. He shepherded them with integrity of heart and skillful hands. And we're going to talk about integrity of heart a lot, character, the kind of men we are called to be. And pray for that. Pray that God will use that in our fellowship this morning. I'm trying to take the pattern after the Bible and after what I'm studying here in Exodus 18. Character is primary. Skills skills are not unimportant, but character is primary. Notice what qualifications Jethro gives to Moses for what kind of leaders are to be in, in in the congregation of Israel. Qualifications are they are able. Don't you like that? Look for able men. Look for men who can get the job done. Look for men who, like, when they counsel, it helps. Look for men who can make a decision. Look for men who are able. They can handle the job. 
Look for men who fear God. Who fear God. Their chief desire is to promote the glory of God. They're not operating from any other motives. They just want God to be pleased and worshipped. That's, that's, that's their motive. Who are trustworthy. They're willing to give counsel people may not want to hear and make judgments with which they may not agree. But they're trustworthy. They're reliable. They keep their commitments. They're people you don't have to micromanage. Those are the kind of guys we want. And then he says, who ate, hate a bribe. That gets the motive, doesn't it? This communicates something to us about the nature of people and how they relate to leaders. Sometimes people want leaders they can manipulate to serve their own ends. And he says, don't pick those guys. They got to fear God. They got to be trustworthy. They got to be able. And they got to hate that kind of bribery. People want, often want leaders to side with them. Don't pick those leaders. Pick the leaders that want God. They will flatter you. They'll try to persuade you to decide in their favor. And as long as you do that, they're going to like you. Don't pick leaders like that. Pick leaders who hate a bribe. It's dishonest. It stinks to God. It's unworshipful. It drives the Holy Spirit away. Don't do that. It's demonic and it's corrupt. Don't do that. So, look for able men. Is that in the Bible? Yes, plural leadership of the church is God's intention. It's his norm. It's his desire. It's what he calls the church to be and do. And then notice verse 22. He says, okay, so you get your priorities straight. You raise up able men. You empower them to make decisions so that you're not involved in everything. Look at verse 22. And let them judge. Let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves so it will be easier for you and they, they will bear the burden with you. There it is. Jethro suggested that Moses should employ these men over appropriate numbers of people to hear their cases with harder cases working their way up the chain until only the most difficult cases actually came from before Moses. So the Supreme Court didn't get their ideas from themselves right? How offensive is it to the Supreme Court if they have to hear stuff that they shouldn't be hearing? If a case makes it to the Supreme Court, and they'll be upset that lower courts have not handled that problem, correct? Cliff, is that, would that be true from a lawyer's perspective? Give me a thumb. They, they'll be gracious, but they'll say, listen, why are we taking the time out? We've got like really, really hard cases to solve, and we're dealing with this. This is like a city ordinance that should have been resolved like 10 rows down, and Moses, Jethro's telling Moses, you should be the same way. You should be the same way. He said, why didn't you handle this among yourselves? Why didn't you take care of this? Is the Bible not clear on what we're supposed to do in situations like this? This is exactly what Jesus advises us to do with every single dispute that arises in the church. It's, he says, if a dispute arises in the church, go directly to the pastors. Right? Is that what he says? Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever is bind, you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus got that from Exodus 18. Every 
the principle is that you don't go straight to the top with every dispute you have. In a church context, you wouldn't go straight to the pastor or straight to the elders or straight to the whole congregation if someone sins against you. Instead, you should confront the person yourself, and then if that doesn't work, you slowly incorporate more people until the dispute is resolved. This is why this pattern is given in Scripture. It's to protect people, it's to love people, and it's to be integrous, to have integrity. So Moses' job was to ensure that the people get justice without burdening Moses every single time a dispute arose. So in order to do that, other people have to be empowered to make decisions. And I know that I can speak for your pastors here. We love it when we don't know about what's going on and things get solved because that's the way the church is supposed to be. That's the way things are supposed to happen. They're supposed to happen because people did the biblical thing and worked things out one-to-one or two-to-one or three-to-one before they tried to uh, get other people involved. So that's the, that's the biblical pattern. And this is why we have deacons and elders. It's why we have a division of labor. Deacons and elders have different responsibilities. They both lead, but in different ways. We have an excellent team of deacons that oversees the physical needs of the church, and we have a team of elders that oversees spiritual care. That way, the whole man, woman, and brother and sister is cared for physically and spiritually. That's the design of God in the church. And this is why Ephesians 4 is in the Bible, that pastors are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We don't have time to go into that in any detail, and you all know that anyway. So very quickly, in conclusion, notice what results from this plan, verse 23. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people will go to their place in peace. Brothers and sisters, do you want that upon your life? Do you want that upon our church? Do you want God to direct us? Do you want us to be at peace and in love and on purpose and mission together? You'll be able to endure. You want us to persist, and then we got to do this. We got to get this vision the vision of shared responsibility and shared leadership. This plan results in the blessing of God. And it's because biblical leadership is shared leadership. God's plan is not to give one person every gift. And even if he did, that person would lack the time and strength to do everything that needed to be done. However great our talents may be, no one person can do everything. God's plan is to give a plurality of gifts to a wide number of people. God's way is the division of responsibility, not the accumulation of it. When Christ appointed apostles, he chose 12, and he didn't put one of them in charge. When the apostles appointed the deacons, they told the church to select seven. When Paul traveled around planting churches, he always left multiple elders, not one, in charge. By contrast, when a religious organization revolves around a single leader, we call that a cult, not a church. The people of God should think of themselves as a community in which every member plays his or her part honor and embrace the vision of shared leadership. Don't expect any person to be all that the church needs. Respect the various giftings of your brothers and sisters and resist sinful favoritism. According to 1 Corinthians 1, well, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. Be gone with that. And then finally, notice the humility to receive this wise counsel in verse 24. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. 
Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves, then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. What humility on the part of Moses. I mean, just a humble man, willing to receive counsel. It doesn't ever feel good when somebody comes to you and says, hey, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Who likes that? No one wants to hear, hey, you're doing it wrong. But let's see, he hears it, and he receives it, and he implements it. Let's close with Jesus. Moses is an imperfect mediator. He's weak. He can't do it all. We got a Savior who, when he did it, said, it is finished. It's finished. We see this all throughout the Bible. Everywhere we might be tempted to think that someone might be the hero of God's story, like Moses, we find their limitations. Noah gets drunk, sleeps naked in his tent. Not the one. Not the, not the Redeemer. Abraham humbles himself to be blessed by Melchizedek. David gets confronted by the prophet Nathan to rebuke him for his sin. Not the one. Peter denies his master three times before the rooster crows. Not the big church leader. And Moses takes advice from his father-in-law about how to lead the people of Israel better. This isn't a knock on Moses. It's a biblical acknowledgement that Moses isn't the end of the story. It's the suggestion that someone greater than Moses would eventually come and that that someone did come in the person of Jesus Christ to be the savior of the world, a role that Moses was unqualified to fulfill. There are points in the Bible where we see clear declarations about who the Messiah would be, and then there are points in the Bible like Exodus 18 where we intensely feel the vacuum that only Jesus could fill, and Exodus 18 is one of those. We feel the vacuum. He's not the one. I mean, look how weak he is. We need a strong Savior. We need a mighty Deliverer. And this story is one that shows that we can't and we must not and we aren't going to settle for Moses. For as much glory as Moses had, the glory of Jesus brings the glory of Moses to nothing. And he's our true Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word that helps us. Thank you for being a helpful God that is one who comes to us in our weakness and our weariness and says to us, here's some friends, here's some family, here's some counsel, here's some salvation that I brought, here's some leaders that can help you, here's some people who can come alongside you to help bear your burden. Lord, you are so good to us. Thank you for being a God who helps. Thank you for being a God who, when we're weary and when we're tired and when we're worn out, you don't look at us and say, get your act together. Get your act together. What's wrong with you? And scold us. But you know, you say, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Thank you, Jesus, for being our refuge and our rock. Any among us this morning who have yet to come to you to offload their burden at the foot of the cross, may they do so right now. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, brothers and sisters.